Good morning, Collective Church. Pastor Ryan here. I hope this finds you doing well as we begin in the first week of our summer series that we're calling The Story of Justice. We're beginning a week earlier than we had originally planned, specifically as conversations between uh, not just the pastors, but also many of you. Uh, we understood and saw the deep need, not only to get started sooner rather than, than waiting another week, but also the need for a pastoral prologue, as we've been referring to it. And so uh, we're going to get into it. We're not going to waste much time today. Um, you know, Welcome back for paternity, Father's Day, all that. We're going to get right into it. And, and I'm just going to warn you ahead of time uh, that, that today may feel like a fire hose a little bit. Um, part of that is I'm, I'm coming back from four weeks of paternity of not preaching. So you're getting all of that pent up. You're getting me burning over all of the content that you're going to be, we're going to be focusing on today. Uh, not just over the past few weeks, but, but years in some cases of reflection. And I know so many of you have been patiently waiting, uh, for us to be able to address the issues of systemic injustice and racism and all of this going on. We're going to be doing that over the next 11 weeks for sure. But we're, we're setting out today, and so I hope to begin to, to bring our, our church together around some of these issues. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to get right into it. Father, thank you for Collective Church. Thank you for your word. I'm grateful that I get to be a pastor here. Father, my prayer is that over these next weeks, you might help us to see what it means to be your people and to see the particular ways in which our assumptions of what it means to be your people need to be challenged so that we might regain that original vision of your people as the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice. And that that flows from the fact that we have received righteousness and justice through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Speak through your word. Speak through me. Give us open ears, open hearts as we open your Bible. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to begin today with Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Jesus, opening in his Sermon on the Mount, says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. A few questions as we get into this. Who is the you that Jesus calls the salt of the earth? When the preceding verses there in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives what we now refer to as the Beatitudes, this list of the blessed ones. The you that is the salt of the earth are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are pure in heart, who are merciful or compassionate, who mourn over the state of the world, who are meek or humble, those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The salt of the earth, based off the Beatitudes, are those blessed individuals who desire, receive, and enact the righteousness and justice of God, or as he calls them, those who receive the kingdom of heaven, his disciples, his church, his people. Now, what does it mean for these people, those who desire, receive, and enact the righteousness and justice of God, for them to be salt? What is Jesus getting at here? Well, in Jesus' mind, as as a Jewish man reflecting on the Jewish scriptures, I mean, salt had so many uses in his day. Salt was used like we do today for flavoring. It makes something taste better. It was used as a preservative on foods to keep them from decaying. It was used to heal sicknesses. It was used to uh, destroy evil. 
It was used in worship services. It was used as a symbol of God's covenant on the, in the sacrificial system. So you bring all those together and you see that those who desire, receive, and enact the righteousness and justice of God make the world taste better, preserve against decay. They heal what's broken. They overturn evil. They worship God and they are a symbol to all the earth of God's covenant promises. Now, bringing all this together, that those who enact, receive, and desire justice and righteousness are the salt of the earth and by their very nature are bringing healing and preservation and, and flavor, for lack of a better way of putting it, making it better. This all leads me and has led me to ask this question. Has the American church lost its saltiness? Has the American church lost its saltiness? Is the American church no longer good for anything except to be thrown out? Or more pointedly, has the predominantly white evangelical American church lost its saltiness? In 2007, David Kinnaman, along with the Barna Group, conducted a, a poll of, of outsiders, those outside of the Christian faith, about their perception of evangelicals in the book uh, Unchristian. On the negative side, some of the highest rating remarks or perceptions of evangelical Christians was them as bigots, as hypocrites, focused on what, what could be called conversionism, only focused on getting you to pray the prayer, walk down the aisle at the altar call or whatever, but not focused about the larger need for renewal in life, that they were sheltered. They were overly focused on conservative uh, partisan politics, that they were judgmental, that they were insensitive. That's the list on the negative side. And at 82%, the largest positive for evangelical Christians was that they teach the same basic idea as other religions, which to me as a Christian shows how wrong the perception has been, but I don't know if I can blame them. You see, if the American church has not right out, if, if the American church has not outright lost its saltiness, my conviction is that at best, it is like the soy sauce in my fridge. It is a reduced sodium version of the real potency of the real thing. Something that has been watered down for the sake of appeasing the appetites of Western sensibilities and their palate. And at the end of the day, is it a reduced sodium state and is in danger of losing its saltiness altogether. In the wake of the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, of Breonna Taylor, of George Floyd, and now Rayshard Brooks, and with them, the generations that have led up to this moment, it has become increasingly difficult for me to deny that what those people saw in 2007 was being untrue, of bigotry, hypocrisy, insular focus, partisan, insensitive, judgmental, and conversionism. Now, I acknowledge that the American church has come such a long way in its inception and time. This past Friday, we celebrate June, uh, Juneteenth, the 155th anniversary of the final con uh, surrender of the Confederacy, the freeing of slaves in Texas. Two weeks ago, we celebrated Loving Day, with the uh, 53rd anniversary of interracial marriage. We have come a long way since the 90 years ago when churches in Portland were hosting Ku Klux Klan meetings. We have come a long way, and yet it is not that long off. It is not ancient history within our nation. It is at best in the rear view mirror, and at most likely we are still driving through the implications of the application of justice. 
just to drive this point home is that uh, even uh, Loving Day and in, in the um, legality of, of interracial marriage within our country, that is only a few years older than Pastor Lorenzo. And Pastor Lorenzo is old, but he's not that old. Interracial marriage within our country is as old as Sesame Street. Even my wife growing up in North Carolina regularly heard taught in churches that interracial marriage was sinful because of some gross misreading of scripture about being unequally yoked. Do you see, we have made major steps. I don't want to downplay that. But we still have much work to do. This is not in the rearview mirror. Like I said, I am grateful for what's been going on within the evangel. There's steps that have been made. Uh, This past year, Lifeway Research conducted a poll and found that 63% of pastors preach about racial reconciliation multiple times a year. 90% of pastors said their congregation would welcome a sermon on racial reconciliation. I'm so thankful to God that we are in a place right now where the preaching of the individual sin of racism is widely accepted within our churches. My conviction, though, is that what has been missing is the proclamation and action against not just individual sin of racism, but the systemic evil of racism and generational white supremacy. This goes all the way back to evangelical leader Billy Graham who honestly, uh, this kind of gets buried away in the notes, critiqued the civil rights movement as being overly focused on changing laws instead of changing hearts. He told Martin Luther King Jr. to pump the brakes on it a little bit. The justice would really come when when Jesus returned. And the whole problem here is, is so many things. But on one hand, if Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement would have pumped the brakes, I'm not quite certain that things would have gotten to where now we just assume them and are okay with them. It took a pushing forward into the movement of justice. And at the same time, this is a, as much as I'm grateful for Billy Graham, a gross misreading of the New Testament proclamation that that future reign and rule of Jesus in which justice flows like mighty waters is not just a then, but is an at-hand element of his kingdom. It is something that his rule and reign is at work now through his spirit-empowered church. We can't read past this. We can't negate this. And, and you know, some of this comes from Billy Graham's own understanding of, of, of Jesus' return being far more imminent than maybe we understand it to be today. I don't, we'll get into Billy Graham some other time. And that's not, again, so grateful for his work. But you can see a bit of an issue there in one of the foremost leaders with the evangelical church. You begin to see the connections of what's going on here. Now, all this brings together for me to say that my conviction is that what we need at this moment is a church who, based on the testament of Scripture and the story of the Bible, embarks on what we might call the salty journey of both and, both a proclamation of the gospel and also action as it pertains to justice and not what the evangelical church has been prone to do, call for an either-or approach. Or, to put it more pointedly, as the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are to call all people everywhere to be reconciled to God through Christ, to be set right, to have justice done for their sake because of the work of Jesus. But then as he continues in verse 21, and then to be tasked as agents of reconciliation, that is, to have justice done through us for Christ's sake. 
You see, I don't think we need an either or. I think we need a stronger, robust theology of a both and. And my hope is that we might regain that in the coming weeks. And that means we've got a big work ahead of us. And so if this summer is going to be a beneficial for us collective, it's going to require three collective commitments. In fact, these things have been what your pastors have been praying for you as individuals and as a community over the past few weeks. And what are those three collective commitments? They are truth, unity, and love. And so today we're going to do just a little focus on each of those words and how they apply to where we're going this summer. Like I said, a pastoral prologue. First is truth, is truth. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying what's called the high priestly prayer. And he prays that God the Father would sanctify his church in truth. And then he says, your word is truth. You see, Jesus's prayer is that his church might be a people who have been set apart in the truth of his word. That is scripture, the Bible, as it all culminates in the gospel that speaks to the truth of this world, the truth of the word that speaks to the truth of this world. It is the good news that is the answer to the bad news of this world. And you see, as you read through scripture, what you find is that violent empires, generational subjugation of people groups, corrupt and inept political leaders, ethnic favoritism, none of these things would be or was surprising for the authors of scripture as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is why, as the Spirit spoke through them, that what happened was they all pointed to a deep need for the arrival of God's Messiah, Jesus, and also in the Messiah's arrival, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on his people so that they might walk in his statutes and obey his law. Next week, we're going to be getting into this more in depth of the truth of the word that speaks to the truth of this world, the good news that speaks to the bad news, asking the question, what is the Bible? But all that to say, it is like this, the word of God, the Bible, which must be the first collective commitment, not because um, of biblicism and the fact that we worship the book, but because of the fact that this has been the book that the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ has given to us as wisdom literature that we might contemplate and meditate what it means to be his people. And it is the revelation for all time of what happened in Jerusalem 2000 years ago. You see, we need this not only to ensure, not this, we need this book, this word, not only to ensure our own faithfulness, but our own sanity over these next 11 weeks. You see, at this moment, everyone, you and I are looking for a narrative with each thing that comes across our newsfeed. It's insane how quickly a narrative shifts, how oftentimes that the initial moment of what happened, the news fractures off into multiple different narratives and storylines, most of them built around the subconscious rubrics of confirming or denying our own biases. And in our digital age, those narratives multiply at an astounding rate and an astounding uh, multitude that becomes endless and, if we're quite honest, exhausting. Amid the constantly changing narratives, you and I need something unchanging as our bedrock and anchor as we wrestle through the cacophony of hot takes, tweets, and pundits. Over the next 11 weeks, we're going to be asking, how does the good news of this word, the eternal transcendent gospel, speak to the immediate present bad news of this world? 
And this must be our first collective commitment because it is the word of God, the truth of the gospel that fashions us as the unified people of God. As Jesus continued in his high priestly prayer in John 17, uh, Jesus the Son prays to God the Father, and he prays not just for his disciples, but for you and me, those of us who have believed through their word. And he prays that you and I may be one, just as he, Jesus, and the Father are in one another, that we might be in them, so that through our unity the whole world may believe that Jesus is the one the Father has sent so that we might find love and redemption, unity based on the revelation of who Jesus is. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, I, therefore, the Apostle Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit for building up the body of Christ. And then he says, until we attain to the unity of the faith. You see, in Ephesians 4, connected there to John 17, Jesus' prayer in the writing of Paul, what we find is that Christian unity is both something that we maintain, that is something that we already have through the truth of the gospel, but it is also something that we must work toward to reach and to attain. So we must maintain and attain that unity because it's through the unity that Jesus shows the world who he is so that they might believe in the truth of who he is. Now, the reality is that in the midst of the past few months with COVID-19, digital services, Zoom discipleship groups, Zoom neighborhood dinners, our distance from one another has enacted pressure against our unity. And in this moment, we... And by we, I mean, yes, you and me, all of us must make every effort to maintain and attain that unity in this season. So how can we maintain and attain the unity in the season? We can be unified in our study of scripture. We need to be unified in prayer. We need to be unified in our discipleship groups, in worshiping together on Sundays to make every effort, even the little ways that seem so small, like being online for the online service so that we can even just say hi in the chat room. Those little things, we're fighting for all of it because we're eager to maintain the unity that we have. Specifically, as it pertains to this coming series, I wanna highlight two other ways that we can maintain and attain that unity. The first is to use this time to examine our own biases and privileges. If that language scratches you the wrong way, just the social differences between one another that can get in the way of unity most often unintentionally, most often unintentionally. As a personal example, last week I'd come back from paternity leave but hadn't really gotten into the, the work schedule and so I just kind of jumped in to do the announcements and so we've got Emma running around and I'm trying to you know juggle Arlo to show him off to everyone and in the midst of giving the announcements, I uh, jumped over not just an announcement to talk about this series but in talking about this series, an opportunity for us to, in our online service, collectively commit not only to justice, but also to lament over the continuing waves of racism and injustice, these instances of police brutality, to, to have that time as a community within our gathering. Obviously, this is not a reflection of my heart, is that not being worth addressing? We're giving 11 weeks to this thing. I, this is clear, like my heart, we, we need to address these things. 
And yet the reality that in doing multiple shoots to try to take and do the announcements just right, that in one of those takes, which ultimately ended up being the final one that I didn't even review and sent over to April, that, that missing out on talking about that showed how even in that moment, the talking about justice and the need for it within our world, specifically as it pertains to race right now, was one more announcement among others. And so this just shows the, the distance that I'm able to experience because of who I am. Now, here's where the breakdown happens, is that simple little slip up led to, for many of you, a fracture in the unity that you feel with your pastors. And so the reality is, is that I'm apologizing for missing out on that. I'm apologizing for not speaking to it. And I'm sorry and apologizing for the fracture in the unity that it may have caused to you and to me. And the reality is, is I hope that in showing this is that the, rea- the, the goal is not that collective, we might be a community where we're all walking on eggshells so that we don't step on one another's toes, but we are with eagerness, as Paul writes, looking to maintain the unity that we have, to own up in those moments when that unity gets deteriorate, deteriorated or, or torn out a little bit, to seek to maintain that unity with grace for one another, forgiving as we have been forgiven but also looking to fight for that unity because there are so many ways that that can be pulled apart. The first thing that I want us to do as we maintain and attain unity is to examine those little biases and privileges. The second thing that I want us to do is to examine our own political partisan allegiances as we maintain and attain to our unity as Christians. As Christians, there is some... I don't know who's putting it on Facebook, but you need to tell them to stop and talking about it in sermons that the word Christian in its original context meant little Christ. We're going to stop that right now. No, that is not what it means. And it just sounds dumb. Um, no, the, the original Greek writing of the original title for the followers of Jesus that was given to them, not by themselves, but by the people of the city of Antioch, Christianus, was a word that meant belonging to Christ. But you cannot miss the explicit political emphasis that that title had. The late Larry Hurtado in his seminal work, uh, Destroyer of the Gods, which is the most metal-sounding book title, he spent a whole chapter reviewing the use of the suffix, that is the, the little ending on the word, Ionis. And he looks throughout the Greek and Roman writings at the time of Paul. And what he finds in these writings is that the common use of it was connected to political figures like Brutianus or Augustianus or Caesarianus. The common use of Ionus identified a person as belonging to the figure designated, connoting allegiance, specifically political support of the named figure. And in Roman culture, there was no separation between religious adoration and political allegiance. What does this mean? Salty Christianity is not and has not ever been an apolitical, apartisan, or centrist for the sake of not rocking the boat, but in fact a deeply political movement as it was founded on the proclamation of Jesus's lordship over all, not just spiritual powers, but over all earthly powers. That is as political as you can get. 
The Christian movement was a political party, a partisan movement up and unto itself, built upon the life and the teachings, the death and resurrection, and the anointed reign of Jesus Christ, their Messiah. Christianity in the eyes of the Roman Empire was a new religious political movement which transcended other people's allegiances and political affiliations. It's why Christianity was so dangerous. Now, all of that to say, one of the things that I'm asking for us to consider as we move in the direction of unity in these coming weeks is to examine our own political allegiances and affiliations. Because the great danger that we see throughout Israel's history, throughout church history, is the loss of the unity of the church, not only with one another, but with God, when his people syncretize their allegiances with the political powers of the world, of the Holy Roman Empire and the Crusades, of Puritan pastors serving as chaplains on slave ships during chattel slavery, of the Protestant German church with Nazi Germany, with the churches of Portland supporting and hosting the Ku Klux Klan. As Jesus put it in Matthew twenty, uh, Matthew six twenty four, you cannot serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. We must examine our own political partisan allegiances if we are to attain and maintain the unity that was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Disclaimer. I told you it was going to be a fire hose. Disclaimer. For quite some time, evangelical pastors and preachers have displayed what seems to me a hypocrisy as it pertains to political issues. I'm not trying to start a flame war. This is just my my perception. I might be wrong here. I don't think I am. Evangelical preachers have rightly used the pulpit to address the sanctity of life and justice for the sake of the unborn. Calling for an investment of time, of money, of voice, and even vote in some cases. All the while remaining utterly silent on the larger swath of injustices plaguing this nation. In these 11 weeks, my hope is to undo this pattern through what we look at in these 11 weeks. Now, here's the reality. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I think that as it pertains to obedience, that we need to work through the wisdom in community of applying that work and being convinced in our own minds, but also acknowledging a community in which wisdom and context might apply the biblical command differently. We need to have the space to work through that. I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but I will be speaking about issues that many have deemed political while remaining just as vocal about other political issues, large in part sometimes because of partisan politics. And through their silence, they have left the larger evangelical church largely impotent and devoid of the sodium of the kingdom that we see in Jesus's statements earlier. And so here's the thing. Oh, I know that's like, that might be a, you know, a, a weighty thing that I've just said. I, I would ask you, regardless of whatever direction you lean, to view these upcoming issues from how the Bible addresses them, to reconsider your own perspectives, consider then what allegiance to Jesus requires of you, and consider what we know about history and context and what's going on in the world. To do that hard work of developing in a wisdom that applies justice rightly. 
The thing is, I'm not aiming for uniformity in the voting booth. I'm not aiming for uniformity in any stretch. I am aiming for a unity that is based upon what we share and what we see revealed in the scriptures and what we see in the world. I want us to wrestle through the application of justice in unity. So as we move to the final point, with the final collective commitment, you see that this final collective commitment grows from the fertile soil of the truth, which makes us one, the unity that we have because of the truth. And it is love. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, when he writes about the love that exists within a local church family. Everybody read, I'm not, this is not a slap on the wrist. 1 Corinthians 13 is not about weddings. It's not about marriage. You can read it. There's significance. It applies to all love. The context Paul's talking about is a multi-ethnic church that is trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in the midst of not only the injustices within the church, but without the church. And that's the context of 1 Corinthians 13, where he writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Truth and unity, when those come together in the community of faith, it, it just grows out into a community of love like this. And Christian justice as an application or an extension of Christian obedience is grounded, hear me, grounded in love, not shame or guilt. My concern with so much of the activism that I am seeing within fellow Christians, and I'm not denouncing or denying the need for our voice to be utilized, the need for us to consider what it means to engage with these issues, I am not denying the deep need. My deep concern is that so many young folks that have been coming to terms with this recently and really beginning to see this is that their motion and movement is motivated by their own feelings of white guilt or shame. To many of my friends, I just want to rephrase Paul's words as what might be a contemporary translation. If I speak in all manner of wokeness and consciousness, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong. If I have sore legs from walking protest, a filled mind with all manner of facts and history so as to move politicians and defund the police, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I repent of all of my white privilege, but I have not love, I gain nothing. You see, shame and guilt work for short-term action, but love, love invokes long-term commitment to justice because it is grounded in the other. 
Justice motivated by shame and guilt ultimately makes you the center of the situation and not your brother or your sister or your fellow image bearer. And what happens is it allows for you to check out once you've alleviated your personal sense of guilt and shame. There is much more to be said here. Not only as it pertains to how we engage with justice and the posture, but even how love invokes and brings out so much more. You see, love challenges apathy. That is okay just to wait and let politicians figure it out. Love shows itself in action. It does not stick within the heart. Love does not participate in cancel culture, but it does challenge in truth. As the teaching pastor, I'm, I'm looking forward to this teaching series. Here's the reality though. I know I'm not going to do this perfectly. So what I'm saying is as we move to this together, let's give grace for one another, both in our discipleship groups and our neighborhood dinners within our community. And I'm asking for that for myself. I am doing my best to commit myself to this being a thoroughly biblical but sensitive and applicable series. I am going to fumble the ball at times. And when I do, if it challenges and breaks down the unity, reach out, feel free to challenge. Whether that's I'm not taking the justice as far as maybe you want or maybe the whole reality that we're talking about this has you worried that we're gonna leave the gospel of the resurrected Jesus behind. Wherever it is, I want this to be an open conversation, not just in our discipleship groups, but even with your elders. And so as you have concerns, as you have comments, you can email me and let's have a conversation going. You can send any of your concerns to Lorenzo at collectivechurch.com. I'm just kidding. Ryan.s at collectivechurch.com. You can actually send them to me, but you can also tell Lorenzo. Here's the reality. First Corinthians 13 it has to be a bedrock for our community in many ways as we move forward in this. Because like all obedience, it has to be motivated not by shame, guilt, or fear, but by love. And so I, I could go on. We could do a whole sermon on First Corinthians 13, but I just want to encourage you to, alongside this series— as we're going through all that we're talking about, the application of justice and and the fulfillment and need for Jesus's work as the moment that God works justice in the supreme way throughout all of human history. We're gonna get into all that. My request would be that you would carve out sometime once a week to sit down and read 1 Corinthians 13, one through seven, to allow it to shape your heart and posture, to shape the conversations in our discipleship groups, to shape how you consider utilizing your voice. And this is to allow it to shape our community. Because justice without love is simply just, you know, it's it's motivated around ourselves. And and that is nothing, that's nothing like the, the, the work of Jesus. So in conclusion, as we wrap it up, for far too long, The evangelical American church has sat on the table as the reduced sodium presentation of the salt of the earth that it was called to be. And in the midst of that, God has surprisingly, in all of the wondrous mercy of God, he has still been faithful to his church. He has not left us as orphans after the decades of explicit racism and evil or complacency and hypocrisy. 
It is a miracle when you begin to look back at the history of how the scripture and the church has not only been silent, but has been not just complacent, but has been an active participant in the evils and injustices of this nation. It is a miracle that is a testimony to God's grace that you and I are still here today, that the church in America is still here today. But I, along with the pastors of Collective, and my prayer is that you too, we are not content to allow another generation to go by continuing in that pattern of either action in this or just complacency in this as we focus on the more important thing, which is getting people into heaven. You see, I'm not content continuing in that pattern. And at some point, at some point, the warning is in Jesus's words that the Lord will deem the salt as no longer being good for anything, but just to be cast out. May it not be so. No. It's high time for us to regain the prophetic vocation as the salt of the earth, as those blessed disciples who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are full of mercy, who are persecuted even for the sake of righteousness, who are going out and making peace. May we regain this. But this is not going to happen in 11 weeks. I don't have to tell you that. My prayer, though, is that these 11 weeks might set our posture aright so that as we move forward into the coming years, that what might emerge out of these 11 weeks is a multi-ethnic community where we stand with our arms linked, our ears open, our Bibles open, our hearts unified, and out of all of that, our lives overflowing with a love for one another and for our world. And through that, My hope and prayer is that we might see within our city and even within our nation what we've seen throughout history whenever a community takes that posture of arms linked together, hearts unified, multi-ethnic, committed to justice because that's the way the Bible talks about it and committed to the Lordship of Jesus. Because every single time in history when you've got a community that does that, it doesn't just lead to, to social justice, it leads to revival that leaves wakes in the history books. The church in Rome, not in a democracy, but in a monarchy, unable to overturn slavery, instead saw their communities as a counter city where whenever anybody walked in those doors, there was no longer slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, but all together in equality, gathering under the work of Jesus Christ where slaves were welcomed as equals, where the church would spend their evening walking the streets of Rome, listening for those babies who had been abandoned and left to die from exposure, and they adopted them in. This and more led to the growth of Christianity, which turned Rome upside down in just a few generations and destroyed its gods. The church in Britain and its political fight to abolish slavery alongside William Wilberforce and then the later preacher Charles Spurgeon and their work to abolish slavery kicked off the first great awakening that we still sing songs and hymns that were written from. The church in India, as it politically campaigned against and opposed the caste system, the self-immolation, that is the suicide of widows and female infanticide, they went to work and out of it, they saw whole villages become Christians in a day. They to this day see an incredible revival that continues particularly among the Dalit people, the lowest caste system and the members of society. 
The church in China, as it campaigned against the practice of foot binding, the unfair treatment of maidservants, as it opposed the opium trade, and out of that developed systems for treatment of its addicts, sparked a revival where Christianity to this day, though opposed by the government and having to meet in house churches, grew from 18 million to 38 million in 12 years. That is a growth by 20 million. You see, the, the delusion that we might hear is that I have to focus on preaching the gospel or administering justice. And the reality is that church history shows us that when the church commits to both of those, you can have both. You can have a revival where people become Christians and follow the way of Jesus at such a rate that we can't even begin to get our minds around how the new heavens and new earth are going to contain all of us. And at the same time, we can speak and even campaign against the injustice against those image bearers. It is not an either or, but a both and. And these examples show us that when Christian communities walk in its full sodium potential, both proclaiming truth for all people everywhere to be reconciled to God through Christ, and then because of that, to be united together in love as agents of reconciliation themselves for Jesus. This is what we have been called to. This is the salt of the earth. And this is what my prayer is we might begin to recapture over this summer. As Pastor Martin Luther King Jr. once put it, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood, of unity, can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. May the truth of the gospel, which binds us together in unconditional love, break forth in justice and revival as we regain what it means to be the salt of the earth.